If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. As far back as the archaeological record can take us, we can find evidence of blind people. But the experiences of those people and the ways that they were seen by others have always been hugely shaped by the historical context in which they lived. Writer and broadcaster Selena Mills' new book, Life Unseen, explores the forces that have impacted the lives of blind people through the centuries. From religious ideas and mythical tropes to Braille and schools for blind children. And I spoke to her to find out more. So thank you so much for joining me, Selena, to talk about your book, Life Unseen, A Story of Blindness. The book is part history and it's part memoir. So to start us off, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your own connection to the story and why you wanted to delve into the history of blindness. I think I started because um, I was losing my own eyesight and still am. And I just didn't understand how the word blind and blindness was used so differently by so many different A, people and B, eras. And I I was A, surprised at how people treated me. Like I'm the same person as I was two days ago. And yet I get, you know, the moment I have a cane and sunglasses, I'm suddenly either a burden on society or I'm really inspirational and so marvellous, which really annoyed me. 
And then I was at a an alumni you know dinner, and all these academics started telling me what I would have been in different eras. And I was like, that's really, really interesting. As you say, something that you examine throughout the book are stereotypes and tropes about blind people that have persisted through history, really. What are some of those key tropes or stereotypes? Essentially, there's um, a sort of charitable model, which is pity. You poor, poor thing, it's terrible what's happened to you. And the solution to that pity is either a miracle, so either Jesus or God or whoever coming along and uh, taking off this terrible burden that you carry, or inspiring. So you're Homer, you're Milton, you write beautiful poetry, you write beautiful music, you're really talented, you're very skilled. If you're very, very lucky, you might be Tiresias and have prophecy and be able to foretell the future because you can see from within and not outside. And it kind of uh, went into the inspiration mode full on in the 19th century. So those are the sort of two main ones. And then there's a sort of a medical one, which is you're something, you're an object and you need to be fixed. And there is a solution. There's always a solution, even though for the majority of blind people, there isn't a solution. And even if there was, you might not want it. So I guess those three, medical, charitable and inspirational, those are the main areas. So this is a story that goes back a really long way. What's the oldest evidence we have of somebody being blind? And do we get any hints at what life might have been like for them? So, again, I think this has to come with a caveat, which is this is what we know so far. They do know that archaeologists found, in the last 20 years, actually, not so long ago, um, some skeletons on the edge of the Tigris River, and all the skeletons were buried outside a cave. And these were 45,000-year-old Neanderthal skeletons. And then they found one skeleton in the cave, like on the edge, um, slightly propped up, you know, almost sort of like sitting back, relaxing, Um, And they called it Nandi. And the reason they were focused on it, it was like, how come this one skeleton is on the corner of the cave? And they did some carbon data testing for the age of the bones. They also looked at the DNA and they also looked at sort of diseases that the bones might carry remnants of. And they found that this one skeleton, who they called Nandi, Nandi the Neanderthal, very original, he had disease all through his body, which, if taken to its fullest conclusion, would mean he was blind, probably have uh, problems with his walking and his legs, and more than likely uh, deaf as well. And yet he lived to be 45, whereas everybody else who died in, in who the skeletons around him were 28, 29. So the question then became, how does... Uh, a man or a Neanderthal survive if he is more than likely blind and deaf and sitting by the side of the cave. And we don't actually know, but we have a couple of premises that we can think about. One is other other skeletons, which were then at the time alive, helped him, cared for him. Um, which means that illness and disability was not seen as, you know, something to reject you from the tribe It was something that was part of. It could have been also that he happened to be by the river. There's some mulberry bushes and whatever nearby, so maybe he was 
okay, maybe maybe he was just part of the gang and everyone's like, oh, would you like a, you know, like a drumstick? Yeah, okay, fine, Nandy gets one. We just don't know uh, exactly how he was treated, but we do know factually that he was more than likely blind, and that's 45,000 years, years ago. So those are the sort of traces of the past that we know. And if we move into the ancient world, there are a lot of interesting stories and myths about blindness that begin to emerge, aren't there? So again, you have to be careful because it's fictional. So some of the greatest playwrights, ancient classical playwrights, you know, Sophocles, um, Euripides, they wrote the most phenomenal stories. And there's two sides to it. One is that blindness appears as a bad thing, tragic, terrible thing, and a punishment. So you have Oedipus and he pulls out his eyes. So he sleeps with his mother, kills his father, and the thing he does, you'd think it'd be another organ, perhaps, that he might damage, but no, it's his eyes. Because for the the ancient Greeks, the, the, the idea of the eyesight looking upon another with love or hate was so essential that to take out your eyes is the, the closest thing you can do without killing yourself. And at the same time, it can be a gift. So... Some of the greatest myths, so Tiresias is one of the most famous ones, and he appears in Oedipus, ironically, the blind Tiresias. He has inner you know, sagacity, he knows the future, he, he can warn you, um, he can tell you bad things are going to happen or good things are going to happen. We know that there are blind women who are prophets who uh, also could see, uh, allegedly, into the future, and they're sort of fictional characters but they're, they're, they're considered almost de- deities. They're, very, they're put up on the shelf of, or the mountain rather, of, of great knowledge. And then finally, and this is the one I, I find, I think that has stayed with us, is um, the sort of talent. So if you're blind, you've got to be good at music. <laughs> you've got to have a good memory. And the one that everyone speaks to is Homer. So Homer, who writes the Odyssey, um, and writes, uh, Ulysses is consi- was considered blind because all the statues we find of him have him with his eyes down and closed. And then we know that 100 years later after his alleged death, uh, as in alleged, we don't know exactly when he died, we have other writers talking about him and they called him, in that they give him the epithet, the blind Homer. So it, there's a sort of mythic blind poet thing going on, which has been with us for centuries. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest 
Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And touches on that trope, doesn't it, of, as you say, if you're blind, you can't just be ordinary. There's something that you say in the book, which is um, there's very kind of few stories in literature about people who just happen to not be able to see. Usually the blindness is used to signify something extraordinary or or incredibly different and unique, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And it happens now. I mean, that's the weird thing. Has that happened to you? Is Can you give us some examples? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, and actually... Uh, so one of the reasons I decided to put myself in the book as well, rather than just write a straight history book, was that I kept having experiences where it was very close to what I was reading about. So, uh, for example, people think I have a really good memory. I might have a really good memory, but they presume it's because I can't see. And the phrase I hear pretty much every day, if not every week, is, oh, but you must have such good hearing. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, or I happen to be very musical, but, you know, so were my grandparents. So I'm more than likely to have inherited it from my grandparents than I would have because I can't see. It's almost that you have to offset the terribleness of blindness, the alleged terribleness and tragedy of it all, with a compensation. So it has to be matched somehow with oh, well, you can hear better. And the most famous one is, um, obviously, you're meant to be a better lover. And I would not like to say on BBC a History Extra, any of will not discuss that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll leave, we'll leave that one uh, for the listeners to, to uh, think about. People have also long obsessed over the elusive idea of a cure for blindness, which is something that you look at in your book. What ideas have people put forward in the past well, the history of curing, I think I think we have to start with the a premise here, which is it's a natural thing to do to want people not to suffer. So I think we have to start from there rather than just blindness being fixed. So we've got ancient um, papyrus papers of people saying, you know, and if you squeeze the liver of a pigeon on somebody's eyes, it will get rid of blindness. And that's, you know, sort of, oh, okay, you know, fine. But the idea to to relieve someone of the innate, quote, suffering, end quote, of it is, is really pervasive throughout history. But it really gets going in the 18th century. So the 18th century, particularly in the West, because um, I, I would say that I do concentrate on Western history rather than any other the ones that really always come to mind are the 18th century where they did horrendous things to people all in the name of curing. So like they wrapped your head in plaster to make your eyes bulge to see if that would release, you know, some sort of inner 
demon stroke pressure. They put electricity on your eyeballs. They um, made you bleed because maybe your humours were out of sort. The other thing that has changed in treatment is some blindness has been um, seen as a psychological event. So, for example, people who come out of wars and they are blind simply because they're in shock and their brains just shut down. The impulse um, to help create sight goes, but actually the eyes themselves as an organ work, they're fine. So that would be another way of, of other thing, of, and that treatment is, is, is therapy. Um, and also something called blinking therapy, which is really interesting, where um, in order to stop trauma re, re, uh, reappearing, people um, are taught to blink and things. But anyway, so the answer, the short answer to your question is it depends on the era that you're in, but it ranges from everything which we would consider horrific to the present where we think, gosh, how amazing. Something else that you look at, as well as changing ideas about science and and cures for blindness are changing ideas about education and how blind children should be educated what did you find about some of the institutions or schools that were set up and how they reflected the times that they were set up in really so the 19th century was really the heyday of institutions everyone decided that was the thing to do so up until sort of the 19th century you know, you either sort of ended up begging at city walls or or get hidden at home. But the 19th century, particularly in Europe, there's a sort of um, revolution, which is like, let's create educational and working training places. But they're not pleasant. They're not like some lovely, nice, you know, sort of um, private boarding schools. It's horrendous, often very poor, very smelly, very dirty, and people get sent away for seven years, so literally they don't come home again. I went to see one in America, actually, um, which I thought was fascinating. You come in, and literally on the left side was boys go up one row, one staircase, and right side girls go up the other side. And your whole day was completely dedicated to learning to be blind. The 19th century gave this idea that you take people away from the community, and the 20th century, it, it was that was pretty much the thought too, until about the 60s, 70s, and then it got questioned. And now it's slightly different. Now people think it's better to integrate people into a community and go to the same school as your fellow sighted friends. It's a, it's a debate that goes on all the time about disability and schooling and education. But I do think the 19th century really created this idea of, of the institution where you send someone away and also they have no choice, like there is no choice and you have um, very little freedom um, and you don't, you don't get to see, you know, your family and you certainly don't get to have a relationship with anybody because you're very, very controlled. It's quite shocking, actually. It really, I think it, my sister and I had long chats about it and we were saying how had I been born earlier, I might have ended up at a school simply because it was, you know, a special school because... That was what you do. And some people, I have friends who are blind who went to some amazing schools uh, which were deliberately created to help uh, blind kids and had a whale of a time and were incredibly supported. But I think that's a modern... I mean, I think the modern education system wouldn't allow people to be kind of separated and um, objectified. So I think it's an ongoing debate about education 
I think that raises a really interesting point about your book because it's not an objective history, is it? Like, because it's part memoir as well, you're really involved in this history. As you say, you get a vision of what your life might possibly have been like if you lived at a different time. What was that experience of uncovering some of the, these stories and these um, past experiences like? It was very moving. I did try and write the book as a straight history book and I couldn't do it because so much affected me. And that's why I ended up in, I sort of merged the two. In some ways it was, an, it was very difficult because you realise not much has changed in terms of stigma, objectification, separating blind people into this special community, even if well-meant, even if really, really well-meant. What have been some of the most important tools or strategies, perhaps, that have been invented that have really helped blind people in their daily lives and helped improve blind people's lives? I think sometimes it's individual, so each person finds their own strategy. The invention of various technologies of this era, 19th century and before, obviously, it depended on if you had money and access to learning. So I love um, the 18th century blind musician Teresa von Parody, who got strips of silk and put knots in them so she could tell or remind herself where the music changed, either rhythm or key. Um, and you think, wow, that's cool. She also invented raised maps. So she had her court engineer create a map for her so she could feel how the world was. There are some very obvious ones. Braille, amazing, 1828, doesn't get to be universal till 1860s, but it is the most intimate, private way of being able to read without having A, someone read to you, or B, even have a computer read to you. It's a very intimate relationship. It's, it's as close as you can get to reading in terms of owning the words. So the, obviously the 20th century has, um, 21st and 20th century have guide dogs, you know, fantastic, and tech, tech, you know, um, is phenomenal. It has completely changed my life and made my life much more independent. But I think each time you look at a new invention and you, you ask, you know, what does, what helps the blind people, you also have to ask who invented it and who owns it. So for me, when I look at these things, I think, gosh, you know, guide dogs, absolutely amazing. It's interesting that there's been a push for guide dog owners to train their own dogs rather than have a, a group of sighted people do it. Or AI. So you have quite a few apps out there who are, which are phenomenal, but you have to you know, either pay for them or be there owned by other companies, which is fine, but it means that you don't have control over it. So I think what worked about Braille was it was a, a blind man inventing a resource for blind people and it was free. So, like, there was nothing attached to it that would make it owned. And I think that was phenomenal. One thing I did want to ask you about, which we haven't touched on, uh, which is a theme in your book, is religion. For a long time, Christian thinkers really set the agenda in the West. How did that shape the lives of blind people? What ideas about blindness did they perpetuate or put forward? I think, as I said... What's really interesting about the subject of blindness is that it, it seems to reflect whatever the society around you is, you know, immersed in itself or constructed by. So Christian religion, and you, oh, I, I would say 
Judeo-Christian religion um, has really impacted the West notion of the blind. The most interesting aspect is, you know, think about Genesis in the beginning, there was light. So there's a sort of binary opposition set up pretty early on of light versus dark. And if you think and consider that light, you know, blindness is considered darkness by most, which is actually an erroneous uh, label, then you really do understand how it's so easy to say blindness bad, sight good. You know, light, truth, knowledge, and darkness bad, evil, burying in ground. So you've got this sort of binary opposition that's been set up from very, very early on. And it actually is pre, I would say it's pre-Judaic. I think most creation myths have an element of light, good, darkness, bad. You've uncovered all these incredible stories of people in the past who were blind. Alongside the ones that you've already shared with us, were there any that particularly resonated with you? A couple, uh, particularly as a woman losing her sight. And things also changed as I was researching. So I started this book about 10 years ago, all the research for it. And then as I was uncovering other historians, um, academic uh, specialists, uh, really found the most extraordinary uh, people who, I call it on the corridors of history or the, the hillside of history, they're there, we just don't see them. So my favourite... I think um, there's a woman called Elizabeth Gilbert, who's not the writer of Eat, Pray, Love, but um, a Victorian philanthropist. So she she was educated, had a bit of money, and she uh, gets scarlet fever when she's 18 months or something, and, you know, she's about 1850s. And she happens to be the daughter of a master at an Oxford college. And so she gets access to knowledge and training that most blind women of her generation wouldn't have. And because of that, she gets to 23 and she writes to her father, um, I think through, through a, a, a manuensis, and says, you know, I really know that I'm probably not going to be on the marriage market. You know, in Victorian Britain, probably not my thing. But what I'd really like to do is help people. And so... While the RNIB is also set up around the same time, sort of the late 19th century, a woman goes and starts a, a factory for blind people in Hoburn in London, and everybody in the factory is blind, except one man at the door who's sighted, who checks the goods that they make to make sure everything's okay. And all the money goes back in. It's like sort of a John Lewis. All the money goes back into the into the group and they have a library, they have a choir, they have pensions. It's just the most extraordinary sort of advanced community of blind people. And it's set up by a woman and she writes to Queen Victoria and she goes, please may I have some money? And she writes to Gladstone and she writes to Australia and they all help. And it's definitely part of the do-gooding philanthropic wave that's going through Britain at the time. But at the same time, you think how amazing that this woman gets to find a vo not only a voice but create a platform for other people that is shared and equal and it's not hierarchical and it's just it was phenomenal I'm, I'm always so um, and she was called her nickname was Bessie so I was like Bessie that is an amazing story in the conclusion to your book you say has my notion of blindness changed after this gallop through history absolutely yes how so 
I think the most fundamental thing I learned and I carry with me now is that blindness is part of society. It's not a separate thing. And it's been with us since Nandi the Neanderthal from 45,000 years ago. So I think having thought of myself as someone who was becoming objectified or being treated differently, I, I felt better because I thought, okay, I'm I'm part of man, humankind, mankind, womankind. And I felt, I feel rather almost proud. You know, I'm, I'm, it gave me the right to be here in a bit, in a way that maybe the sighted community couldn't give me. Um, so people are very generous and they're, oh, you're doing so amazingly and you're so wonderful and good on you. And it's all a little bit lovely and patronizing. But at the same time, I'm allowed to be here and not see. Because I think the thing about not seeing is that people think, oh, well, you need help and you need, you know, you're you're either a burden or an inspiration, but you can't just be here. And that's what I, I really like about it. It really helped me with that. That was Selena Mills speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Selena is the author of Life Unseen, A Story of Blindness, which is on sale now. for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.